A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. breeder in America. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this is the next installment in our ongoing series of uh, Great American Jewish Cities, and tonight we will be talking about Baltimore. This um, episode has been sponsored, generously sponsored, by a dedicated listener, um, and, um, um, and resident of Baltimore, and it was a daunting task when I uh, thought we're going to do Baltimore, so I turned to um, first the Jewish History Soundbites legend Ellie Neuberger to help me prepare a little bit, and he supplied some information. We should really de- dedicate an episode of Baltimore to him, but since he's so modest, he would never let me do that. But I also um, was able to get a large, large amount of information and stories was graciously provided by a long-time uh, Baltimore generations in Baltimore, Kenny Friedman. And um, he uh, has a vast knowledge of all Baltimore history, and Kenny shared much of this, uh, what's going to be said on this podcast is credited to him, a lot of it, and I very much appreciate the assistance from all those who provided information. This an ongoing series of Great American Jewish Cities. There's many more cities to come. There are sponsorships uh, still available for your city, so be in touch with me. Um, the potential sponsors should or can be assured that thousands of people are listening to these episodes. They're very popular, and um, your sponsorship will really get around. So um, as we get along with um, with Baltimore, it's a city that has a rich Jewish history. There's there's many, many stories and aspects and facets and personalities. We won't be able to get to all of them because of the time limitations. Maybe there'll be a part two one day. So if we didn't mention your favorite character, then don't be too upset. And we'll hope to get to him uh, or her or whatever uh, another time. Um, the... Baltimore Jewish history goes back to the 19th century. It's very old. And one of the most uh, more famous personalities who made their mark on American Jewish history you know, in general, and specifically in Baltimore, was the first ordained 
Orthodox rabbi to have an official position in the United States was Rabbi Abraham Joseph Rice. He it was a it was an unsuccessful or you know uh, uh, career, um, but he but he left his mark, and there was a it was a beginning, and that beginning was in Baltimore. He was a German uh, rabbi, learned in the famous yeshiva and feared in Germany, along with other uh, greats of mid-19th century Germany, the Wurzbergerov and others, the future Wurzbergerov and others, learned there as well. And he came to the United States in 1840, and he becomes, in the midst of the great, um, the first wave, big wave of Jewish immigration to America, is before the massive waves of Jewish immigration to America in the 1880s and 90s and on, but um, in the earlier part of the 19th century, there was a large wave of, of uh, Jewish immigration from Germany, from Bavaria and other parts of Germany. You're talking about in 1825, there's 5,000 Jews in the United States. 5,000 mainly descendants of the Sephardic exiles, Spanish exiles, um, and others scattered, small, isolated uh, Jewish communities in America. That's in 1825. By the time the Civil War breaks out, there's 150,000. That's a huge growth in percentage and in numbers, in actual numbers, and that was almost entirely a German-Jewish phenomenon. So they start to bring in Jewish leaders, and uh, the reform of the American Jewish community takes place almost in parallel to the reform movement within Germany itself. And very often the American reform even took more radical positions than the German-Jewish reform. It was a different type. It was less of a rebellion against norms because in America there was no norms. You're kind of starting everything from scratch. But in any event, the first Orthodox rabbi who arrives is Rice. And he comes and he becomes the rabbi in what was had a few different names. The congregation Nidche Yisrael, um, the scattered of Israel, a very apropos name. And he becomes an uncompromising warrior to a certain extent against reform. Um, he, he, one of the things he initiated was um, both in the shul to prevent any change. At a later point, he even tried to start a school for Jewish education. He was a real pioneer in the sense that he was the first to do quite a few things in uh, in American Jewish life. One of the more ironic uh, things, perhaps, was that he. He uh, was forward-thinking enough to invest in learning English and to speak in English to the younger generation because he felt if they would stick to German, then uh, they would lose the younger generation who was speaking English, growing up speaking English in America. Now, ironically, that helped him in his battle against the Reform because most of the rabbis of the Reform movement were very German. They relied on German texts and materials from Germany. They imported it, and they very often gave their sermons in German. So here, the Orthodox rabbi was promoting English, and that um, that, that that helped against the Reform movement, uh, which is a bit of an irony. Now, he was, he was fighting almost single-handedly. Um, there was no other ordained rabbis when he started. Others did come. There was voices of Orthodoxy, Isaac Leeser and others at the time, um, but he, they even tried to, other, other activists tried to make him the chief rabbi of the United States and, uh, leading reform rabbis led by Isaac Mayer Wise, uh, they fought bitterly against that. Now, um, Rabbi Rice 
had to resign from the Baltimore Hebrew congregation, which later on became Reform. He resigned in 1849. He did return, return again shortly before his death, but, um, but he founded a shul in his home. And that shul eventually became She'erith Israel, which was the first and major Orthodox congregation, which, you know, in the later version of it, existed for many, many times, till, till today, essentially, known for many years as the Glen Avenue uh, Synagogue, which we'll get back to. Now that's that's that that's the Rabbi Rice's story mixes in with the Civil War, which is interesting because not many Jewish communities um, can say like Baltimore did that they their community played a role in the Civil War. There were Jewish families in Baltimore that were split down the middle with sympathies on the Confederacy and the Union side, and um, not only that, but um, the rival, the main primary rival of Rabbi Rice in Baltimore was one of the one of the most famous uh, German reform rabbis, David Einhorn. And he was a radical reformer. And he was a, an abolitionist, very anti-slavery. And because of that, and Maryland was a slave state, and it, was, and it seceded, it was part of the Confederacy, so he had to flee Baltimore. So here the reform rabbi, because of his anti-slavery views, he had to leave Baltimore and went to Philadelphia. So, so the... The Civil War prevented Rabbi Rice from becoming the chief rabbi of the United States because ultimately um, the postmaster general didn't allow mail to go to the southern states, any states that seceded, and they weren't able to be in contact with the Jewish community in New York and Philadelphia, which there were activists there uh, who were trying to promote Rabbi Rice, trying to get him involved in a newspaper in New York which would promote orthodox values, trying to get him officially appointed to an overall position for the American Jewish community, and the Civil War essentially cut that off and and uh, and prevented that from happening. It was a so you have David Einhorn on one side in in Jewish Baltimore, who was leading the reform, and many synagogues are switching to reform at the time, and then you have Rabbi Rice on the other side, and in the middle you have a fellow named Benjamin Sold. Zolt, Zolt, I mean, and and uh, he's the father of uh, of the very famous founder of Hadassah, Henrietta Zolt, and he becomes the rabbi of kind of the middle of the road congregation in Baltimore, or Tzedek, and and he and he tries to to go on a middle ground. Now, ironically, the Orthodox in Baltimore and David Einhorn in Baltimore, the radical reformer, they both accused him. Of being essentially what we say in Yiddish, nishtahin nishtaher, like you're you're not on the right and you're not on the left. You're trying to balance something in the middle, and we see right through it. It doesn't make sense to be in the middle. So here, at least the Reform and the Orthodox agreed on something, is that the the middle the middle the middle way is is not going to be the right way for Baltimore. So I guess it's a place that they preferred the extremes. So. Uh, Isaac Mayerweiss torpedoed the idea that Rabbi Rice should become the chief rabbi, and Rabbi Rice, uh, you know, he passes on. So that's the first time that the Yekis tr- played a major role in um, in uh, in the hi- Jewish history in in Baltimore. And now we move on to the end of the century, and then the beginning of the the twentieth uh, century, when it wasn't just Yekis in Baltimore, but actually. There were a few prominent 
Hasidic, Polish, and Galicia rabbis and figures who left their mark in Baltimore. One of them was a, an individual named Michal Forschlager. Michal Forschlager was a student of the Avni Nezer. He came from the heart of Poland, and he was a a Sachachover, uh, the Avni Nezer, Polish a great, great, tremendous Talmud Chacham. And he, there wasn't that many Polish Hasidim in Baltimore at the time, even when he was there. But he was greatly respected for his scholarship, for his his accomplishments, and he um, he helped Rav Ruderman later on when Rav Ruderman tri- um, uh, came in 1933 and started Nair Yisrael. So Rav Ruderman used to send guys to learn some from from Nair Yisrael to learn with Rav Michal Farshlager. He lived in great poverty in the end of his life. And, uh, you know, very simple, almost broken furniture in his house. And he, and he, his clothing were worn out. There's even a story that Rudiman sent a group of guys to study with him from their Yisrael. And Rebuchal Farschlager switched his frayed sweater to a slightly less frayed sweater. And he explained, he said, some very impressive young men from their Yisrael came to speak to me in learning. So I decided to don my Shabbos clothing, my Shabbos sweater, to honor the Neri Yisrael boys. That's the uh, simplicity of his. He was a very reserved personality on one hand, and he, he gave shiurim to Balabatim, um, and, uh, but he would water it down. He knew that he, his natural state was to be a very sharp, uh, Polish Lamdan student of the Avni Nezer, but he would uh, relate to the Balabatim. In fact, he would give, uh, he would give, um, he gave shiurim for a time at a shul called Chizik Emuna. Chizik Emuna was a major conservative congregation, but it started off as an Orthodox congregation, which is why it has the odd the title of Chizik Emuna. They were trying to improve Orthodoxy in Baltimore at the time. And he, and when this Orthodox shul that had Mechol Forschlager was giving Gemara Shir to the members of the shul. So the 1940s, like what happened in many congregations, that's really a major story in the outside of the New York area across America in the 1940s and 50s, is a lot of Orthodox shuls, congregations switched over to conservatives. So that happened in the Schizek Amuna shul as well. And as soon as they decided to have mixed seating and be officially conservative, so Mechol Varshlager said, I'm sorry, I can't give Shiurim here anymore. And it was, he wrote a very, you know, very beautiful letter to the shul telling them he was heartbroken, he loves the people, he loves teaching, but he has to uh, he has to leave, he can't be supportive of this decision. And the members of the shul continued to pay Reforschlager despite the fact that he had to leave. So it says something about them as well. But one time Rav Michal Reforschlager was uh, speaking to Rav Ruderman and learning, and they were arguing and discussing, and they didn't come to a conclusive conclusion to their Talmudic discussion. And they parted ways, it was the evening, and a Ruderman gets a phone call at like 2-3 in the morning, and it's Reforschlager. And he says, what do you want? It's 2-3 in the morning. He says, I thought about what we were discussing, and I wanted to tell you, I came to a maskana, I was able to come to a, a logical conclusion to our discussion, I wanted to share it with you. So a Ruderman says, one second, I know you don't even have a phone in your house, how did you even call me? So he said, oh, around the corner, down the block from my house, there's a bar. So I called you from the local bar. And that's open at this time of night. 
So that's how I, uh, that's how I called you. Another Chesidah uh, who was there even later, in the 1960s and 70s, he was still there, was Rabbi Yitzchak Sternhill, um, my father-in-law who lived in Baltimore and grew up there to a certain extent. His, his father, also a Yaki family, like many others in Baltimore, he he um, lived there. So um, so they they were very close with this Galician, or a Tzanzer Chassid. He wrote about Sanz later on in his life. He he even uh, he recently spoke about. It. He had an earlier episode just recently about Sanz, where we discussed the 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 Divrei Chaim, the Tzanzer Rebbe's dispute with the Sadiger Hasidim. So Rabbi Yitzchak Sternel wrote about it. He wrote about it that it was a an ideological dis- dispute, and uh, he believed as a fiery Tzanzer Chassid that the Tzanz position was vindicated in the end. And his amazing thing is about it is that he's writing this over a century later in Baltimore, where there aren't that many Tzanzer Chassidim and, uh, or Sadiger Chassidim, but he was living it as if he was still back in Galicia. He also denied uh, um, a, a, a testimony that the Marsham, who wrote that when he was... Uh, he had he was in Chartkiv during the time of the dispute, and he he ate from the shechita of the sadiger shaychtim. Uh, despite the fact that, uh, according to the cherem that the tzanzer put out about sadiger, they were not allowed to eat from the shechita. But he said, "I ate anyway because I didn't think that there was anything wrong." And uh, with the with the sadigers and the chartkivers, they seemed like good guys. And uh, and Yitzchak Stern, who was such a a, again, like I said, a fiery Galician or Tzanzer Chassid, despite the fact, not despite, even though he's already, it's already a hundred years later, and he's in Baltimore, and uh, far away from that, he said, nah, it can't be that the Marsham said that. It must be that this truth of the Marsham is forged. That's what he wrote. And he wrote many Sfarim, actually. He was a very huge Talmud Chacham, or Bishop Sternel. And uh, so even though it was not, Baltimore doesn't exactly have a Hasidic Reputation, but there are two early rabbis there who were of a very Polish and Galicia uh, extraction. Uh, one of the uh, legendary shuls, like I mentioned earlier, is the Sherith Israel, which went through a lot of um, stages and has the you know the beloved nickname the Glen Avenue Synagogue. It was a very Yakish shul. Again, my father-in-law who grew up there, he told me that the most distinctive memory he has of the shul is the old yakis from Germany. They were big cigar smokers. All yakis were cigar smokers. And he remembers the cigars in the shul, especially on like uh, Yantif, when they were allowed to smoke cigars. They would go on Shuvah's night when they would be learning all night. They would go out to the, either outside the shul or some sort of outside porch or whatever it was. Uh, they would go and he remembers the... Uh, the classy cigar smoking that took place. It was a very Yakish shul, a very German Jewish uh, shul. And there was a a rabbi there, Rabbi Doctor Shepsel Schaffer, who was the rabbi for about forty years. Again, this is a very old shul, and eventually became the uh, the, the rabbi be- was Reb Shimon Schwab, and he left his mark on the community. Reb Shimon Schwab was, was a rabbi in Germany, and he escaped uh, Germany. He was looking to escape. He was. Uh, a lot of, um, like most German Jews in the 1930s, after the rise of the Nazis to power, especially those in any type of leadership position, they're very often targeted by the Hitler Youth or by the local SA stormtroopers, and he's looking to leave. He met Rabbi Leo Jung from the from New York, and he met him in Switzerland, and Rabbi Leo Jung recommended the position of Sha'eris Yisrael. 
um, because Rabbi Shaffer had passed away already several years earlier and the position of rabbi was still vacant. And he recommended, he said, that's a good place for you. It's a good, yucky community and shul, and you can try to try to get that position. So he applied for the position, and he got the letter he, that he received back from the shul said that he is unanimous. They were voted, he vote, they voted, and he was unanimously accepted. Schwab's English wasn't that great at the time. Much later in life it was. And he didn't know what the word unanimously meant. But he knew that the prefix un in the English language is un, which is like not. So he thought it meant that he's not accepted. So he was all upset, and how's he going to get away from the Nazis, and that seems to be his only hope. And then he decided to look up in his handy dictionary, and he discovered that what unanimously meant, and the rest is history. He came to America, and, uh, and he became the rabbi there. Now, he was the rabbi there for 21 years. It was a fa- very fair amount of time. And, um, and he um, left his mark on the community um, in many ways. He, he, a couple of years, when, when he arrived at Shea with Israel, they still had mixed dances, incredibly enough, at an Orthodox synagogue. And a couple of years after he became the rabbi there, Bechonon Wasserman, uh, the Rashivan Baranovich, came on his uh, long fundraising trip to the United States, and he stayed by Rav Schwab when he was in Baltimore. And Rav Bechonon encouraged him to put his foot down and be firm and put an end to the mixed dancing. So that was one of the first major positions that he took. But he also enforced another rule, which was an old, an old in the bylaws of, of uh, Sheirith Israel, the Glen Avenue Synagogue, was an old uh, rule that voting right privileges are only given to members of the shul who are Shemer Shabbos. Now, according to, to, according to Schwab, not many, out of 150 members, perhaps 10 or 12 had voting privileges. Um, not everyone was, even in Orthodox schools, this is America of the 1930s, and this is what it looks like, and not an easy time, especially to keep Shabbos. And there's a small minority of members of the shul who are actually bona fide Shemer Shabbos. And they were the only ones who had voting rights, and he insisted on it, and he didn't give in that the, to compromise. And what happens is that many members of the shul simply leave, and they break off, and they open up a competition shul block away called Beth Jacob, and who do they hire to be there? They're also, they also remained officially an Orthodox shul. But who do they hire to be the rabbi? They uh, hire Rabbi Dr. Bernard Lander, who had just uh, gotten his smicha from Ramesha Soloveitchik at Yeshiva University. And he becomes the rabbi then. Rabbi Lander was single still. So where did he eat his Shabbos meals? Very often he ate it by Rabbi Schwab. So the rabbi of Beth Jacob, which was the break-off of Sha'irith Israel, was eating his Shabbos meals by Rabbi Schwab, who's the rabbi of the original shul. So, you know, things in in uh, in Baltimore, even the fights are not that exciting. People get along uh, pretty nicely. And um, Rabbi Schwab was also involved in founding the Beis Yaakov, several prominent lay leaders, and also Ram Nachman Schwartz's wife, Mrs. Schwartz, Rebetzin Schwartz, who I'll get to also, um, was involved in that. So they start one of the first base Yaakovs outside of uh, New York, um, if not the first one, I'm not sure. And so he was involved in that as well. Now, one of the most important educational institutions in the United States, especially outside of the New York area, was TA, Talmudical Academy, eventually called Chavetz Chaim, 
which is a Baltimore uh, day school founded in 1917 by Abraham Nachman Schwartz, who, again, it's the first day school, 1917, it's pretty early on, it's first Orthodox Torah education day school founded outside of New York. Um, and it's around till today. A few years later, they bring in Reb Chaim Samson to become, to start, eventually starts a high school. Um, Reb Chaim Samson was a legend in, uh, in, in his time in, uh, Chaim Eliezer Samson. He was a, he was the head of the high school, the head of, uh, TA high school for a half a century, for over 50 years. He was a mirror. He learned in the mirror in Europe. He learned in Lumjur. He was a very close student of the Lumjur Shiva Bechil Mordechai Gordon, who, after, he also spent quite a bit of time in America. Bechil Mordechai Gordon was involved in his appointment at TA. Um, and, uh, I, I, I knew a couple of children of, of, of Reb Chaim Samson. I used to, uh, he had a few daughters. His daughters, Waited, waited it out and married uh, 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 European yeshiva students who only came to America after the war. Uh, very often, I think for most of them, it was a big age disparity because the chinuch, the education they got in the home of their father, Chaim Samson, was to marry someone who was who was a ben Tyra, someone who was a yeshiva guy. And how often, I mean, to grow up in Baltimore of that time and to have that aspiration was a testimony, again, to Reb Chaim Samson and the type of family and home that he had. So one of his sons-in-law was uh, a fellow named Ramatul Rabinovich, who just died a few years ago. He lived in Yerushalayim and Arzi Abir, and I used to lane the uh, Purim uh, Megillah for him in his later years. He was almost, I think he was 100 years old when he passed away, and I used to go lane for him, and uh, and I got to schmooze a little bit with his wife, the daughter of Reb Chaim Samson, wrote a book about her father, and uh, that was a very nice experience to hear about uh, Baltimore of that time. Now, um, Rav Ram Nachman Schwartz, who was a Telzer, right? So you have Rav Chaim Samson was a Lumzer and a Mirror, and and Rav Nachman Schwartz is a Telzer. Rav Chaim Samson, I'm sorry, Rav Nachman Schwartz, um, he founds the the TA Yeshiva originally, and he, um, and some of the famous alumni of TA. At that time, was uh, Ravigda Miller, Rav Mordechai Gifter. Uh, so TA is feeding into Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzchak Hanan, which is the only, you know, older older uh, guy Yeshiva around then. And then people like Ravigda Miller, Mordechai Gifter went on to learn in Europe. So they started off in TA. Later, Baron Feldman, who's the current Yeshiva in Israel, uh, also was a graduate of TA. And and um, People consider Ram Nachman Schwartz almost like the chief rabbi of Baltimore. He was one of the founders of the Yagodis Rabbanim in America. Um, not only that, but he arranged for the first printing of the Talmud, the Chas, Talmud Bavli, in America during World War I. A major accomplishment and another Baltimore accomplishment. Um, the first time that the Chas was printed in America was by Ram Nachman Schwartz. And... Um, and uh, so he founds TA, his wife founds Beis Yaakov. They're the pioneers of, um, of Torah education in, in Baltimore. Now, Rev. Ruderman comes to Baltimore in 1933 and founds an Israel. TA already has a high school. So here's a little competition. Chaim Samson and Ruderman sort of they had a cordial relationship, but they were two different ends of town. And that was also because of Avram Nachman Schwartz. He gets the credit for that, too. He got Reb Samson and Reb Ruderman to be on two different ends of town, so there shouldn't be any 
territory competition, and they, they both institutions would flourish, which was exactly what happened, and there Israel eventually took off and left a everlasting imprint on uh, on Eretz Yisrael and in the American Torah world. Um, Ruderman himself, he names the yeshiva um, Eretz Yisrael after Yisrael Salanter. He wanted it to be a Musar yeshiva modeled on Slabatka, which was he was an alum alumnus of, very close student of the altar of Slabatka. He eventually uh, gets gets get, makes a shidduch to. A, another yaki, the yakis play a role in every stage of of, uh, of Baltimore Jewish history, uh, of Rabbi Herman Naftali Neuberger. He get, gets it to marry his wife's sister, and, um, and this way brings him into the family, and he was a master organizer, a great activist, becomes the administrator, and he you know, builds up the yeshiva, Rabbi Neuberger, and... Um, and they, after the war, they bring in Reb David Krunglas, who was an Altamir, a very close student to Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, to become the Mashgiach of the yeshiva. And and the uh, these these early Rebbeim were the ones who uh, who build up Neri Yisrael. Now, even in those early years, the 1930s already, Reb Moshe Sher was a student of Neri Yisrael at the time, the later the president of Gudis Yisrael. And his first taste of activism was while he was in Israel. It's right near Washington, D.C. His cousin Mike Tress was in New York. He would sometimes send his young cousin to go take care of business. Not only that, but he was exposed to Herman Neuberger at that young age. And uh, Herman Neuberger becomes something of a mentor to him in communal activism, in the care for the Jewish people, Herman Neuberger, for throughout his life, project after project, not only within Israel, but for the entire Jewish world, he was a major uh, force in uh, helping the Iranian Jewish community in the 1970s, and then after the rev- the, uh, the revolution and the Iranian Jewish community in uh, Baltimore and other places in America till today is too much to the credit of Herman Neuberger and what he did for the Iranian Jewish community. And what would Baltimore uh, honestly be today without kosher bite and places like that? So we have to have uh, the Iranians are definitely a part of the story. They come and build their own shuls as well. Um, Reb, uh, Reb Ruderman brings in his son-in-law, Reb Yaakov Weinberg, um, as as a Rebbe, and eventually took him over as the Rosh Hashiva. So the growth of Neri Yisrael and the influence that it has, and and then the decision that Reb Ruderman takes to not just uh, th- th- to allow the the students of Neri Yisrael to pursue a college degree. You know, his old buddy from. From Slabotka, the great Ravaran Cutler, they were very close, and Ravaran Cutler wasn't exactly excited about it. And um, there was, there was, it was a decision that Ruderman took. He even asked some sort of Besdin uh, that he formed just for the specific purpose of asking this question: secular studies, allowing college, allowing students at the yeshiva to pursue college, not within the yeshiva itself, but in Maryland or Hopkins, and uh, stuff like that. And it wasn't an easy decision that he relied on this Besdin to make. He even traveled to Eretz Yisrael at the time to seek out advice from great Torah leaders to decide what the direction of an Eretz Yisrael should be vis-a-vis secular studies in college. And that became of uh, part of, of what the uh, direction that the yeshiva would take. In fact, Ruderman and Rebaran Cutler were once discussing it, and, and Ruderman brought up the fact that in Grubin, where the altar of Kelm had a yeshiva for a specific type of demographic, for children of rich 
Balabantim in Latvia and Kurland was known then in the Russian Empire, and and uh, and in that yeshiva for that yeshiva that the altar of Kelmer and there were secular studies, and it must have been with the approval of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the great teacher of the altar of Kelmer. Some Chazisal Ziv of Kelmer would never do it without the approval of his Rebbe. And Rabbi Cutler said, "No, it can't be that Rabbi Yisrael Salanter would have approved it." So here they're discussing would Rabbi Yisrael Salanter approve of any form of secular studies or not, and uh, you know each one takes it in his own in his own direction. The truth of the matter is, is, is that there's so much to say about Nair Yisrael and Herman Neuberger and Rav Ruderman that they deserve a podcast on their own. We can't squeeze them all into uh, the history of Baltimore. But just a couple of things. Rav David Kronglas um, died relatively young, but he was a, um, a, a fatherly figure, uh, very beloved by the students in Nair Yisrael. He was one of the only mashgichim in the history of yeshivas who was not only a mashgiach, he was a Rebbe, a regular, uh, you know, gave a regular shear in the yeshiva. He was also a Paisik in Halacha. And he, um, and he was also the Chazan of the yeshiva on the Yom and the Raim. So he was in, all around, uh, not your typical Mashkiach. Um, Rev Ruderman, in the 1960s, they initiated the first the buying the property where they are now, which is the outskirts of Baltimore in the city prior to that. And and then building it up, and then eventually moving in. Uh, interesting when he came to inspect the grounds, right when it was being built, and he comes down to this area at the outskirts of Baltimore in the sixties, and uh, they he's shown the blueprints, and they show him standing out in this field, and excuse me, he's got the blueprints in front of him, and said, so "This is where the base medrash is going to be. This is where the dining room. This is where this and that." Ruderman started to cry. Now, he was a bit of a kalta litvak, and he didn't normally break down crying. And the people around him were a bit taken aback, a bit uncharacteristic. So he said, when I came to the United States, everyone doubted that I would be able to build a yeshiva. A lot of naysayers around. And not only did I build, did we, were we successful at building a yeshiva, but here we are, we're planning this huge campus, this massive Yeshiva that's going to be for all ages and all levels, and it's going to have the full service yeshiva, large place. What a place of spreading Torah, and uh, and and all the doubters were proven wrong. Um, so the the um, that that was that was the growth in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi David Krong was the Mashkiach, died in 1972. But interestingly. There's a story that's said about him that's allegedly true. I, hard to verify exactly the uh, how it happened, and but but the story is is printed and and it's said over quite often. So I hope it's true that as a close student of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, he was um, he had he had been close to the Mashgiach in in the Mir. Rabbi Rucham died in 1936, but he continued on in the Mir. He escapes with the Mir. And it comes to eventually to America, and at one point he was uh, shown in Nair Yisrael that they had received boxes of sfarim from Europe from the American army, who had rescued it from some sort of warehouse in Europe that the Nazis had uh, taken lots of stolen goods from Jewish victims, and he's and they brought it to they divided it amongst Jewish uh, they, some of the some of these 
They recognized that it was Hebrew books, so they gave it to different Jewish institutions in Baltimore. And there Yisrael got a few boxes. Uh, Ruderman, or whoever it was that was distributing it, he said to Rabbi David Kronkles, why don't you take the Mashkiach, should take a Sefer, take a, grab a Sefer, take something. And he opens the first box that he saw, and he takes the first Sefer that he sees, and he opens up the book, and lo and behold, it's the Shmuzin of his Rebbe, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz Daz Chachma Musar. He's like, wow, this is something special, this is something powerful. And then he opens it up, and he looks at the cover, and it's his own name written inside. It was his own copy of Rabbi Rucham's Sefer, and that's a, a story that's said over. Now, um, the, uh, the Neri Stroll is not the only ones on the block. Uh, Lubavitch was in Baltimore from early on. There was, even before Lubavitch, there was Nusach Ari synagogues in the early years in, uh, in, uh, in Baltimore. Not, not necessarily Lubavitch, but, um, but there, there was, there's, is in East Baltimore. That was the main Jewish community back in the days before the neighborhood went bad. The Friedrich Rebbe, the Rayats, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, when he visited America in 1930, he spent time in Baltimore, and he was at this uh, this Semach Tzedek Shul, uh, one of the original Chabads in in uh, in America, in Baltimore, and they recently just had the 90th anniversary of uh, of the Friedrich Rebbe's visit to Baltimore. So they they made some sort of uh, ceremony. They made an event there in this what's now a bad part of town. But they went back down there to, to make, to commemorate this, uh, this anniversary. Um, gonna, with so many people to talk about, her base of Tendler was in the, in the high school of Neri Sroll and Moshe Heinemann, who's, may he live and be well, he's still around, who's also originally German, another Yaki. Um, uh, everyone's, everyone's Yaki is in both of them. So he, who was, you know, Lakewood, Talmud Herb Aaron, he's a big Paisic. Rabbi the leader in Kashras, so many people to speak about, but we're going to move on to another um, Torah education pioneer, Rabbi Yamin Steinberg, pioneer in girls' education. Beis Yaakov of Baltimore, we mentioned, was, had already been founded, and they eventually hire this Rabbi Yamin Steinberg. Who's Rabbi Yamin Steinberg? Another Yaki, this time from Berlin. He escaped the Nazis and ended up in Shanghai during the war. So he comes after the war from Shanghai, Graduates Tervadas, and then he comes down to Baltimore to become the principal of the Beis Yaakov. Now he's he builds the Beis Yaakov. It was never a typical Beis Yaakov in his view. Beis Yaakov, uh, Beis Yaakov his Beis Yaakov was never a conformist. Um, he he built up each one's individuality. He was a very fatherly figure who cared about each individual student and guide them guided them in a very individual way, but he wasn't only limited to Beis Yaakov, he gave classes at TA, at Neri Yisrael. Now most of the classes he gave in all three places were in history, Jewish history. He actually loved teaching history, so there's another, there's at least one thing I have in common. Um, but um, but uh, he died young relatively also. Um, but the another, another first that Baltimore had uh, was that the Baltimore Orioles, but even before it was Camden Yards, they were the first place in Major League Baseball that sold kosher hot dogs. So the Baltimore Jewish community, who are big Orioles fans, they had what to eat by Orioles games starting in 1991. 
And and because that was the kosher hot dog stand, so that the religious Jews who were attending Orioles games kind of gravitated to that area, so they're able to make a mincha or myriv, whatever was appropriate, minion outside the kosher hot dog stand during the games. And uh, and uh, I noticed uh, on the Jewish History Soundbite's Twitter account that there was a seemed to be a dispute between different Baltimore residents if the name the the ad hoc name of this. Shul next to the hot dog stand was called Kahal Ripkin or Baseball. Uh, Ellie Fisher, who was, who was a great historian himself, and he was weighing in on this and he seemed to say that it was Kahal Ripkin. Now Ripkin was, was um, a bit of a yekish himself. You know, he was very consistent. He played every day. And maybe that's why the Baltimore Jews loved him so much. But interestingly enough, Ramesha Brown, he was a rabbi in Lawrence. He was one of the greatest Talmudim that Nari Yisrael ever produced, of a Ruderman. And, and he, um, he recently, uh, during now the coronavirus crisis, people aren't able to daven with a minion. So there was a friend of his from Baltimore who hadn't missed a minion in 35 years. So this just happened recently. So he called him to give him some chizik. I've missed a minion 35 years till now. Corona. No one's diving with a minion. We can't. Safety. So the guy responds to him. says, no, you don't have to give me chizik. It's very simple. This is what God wants now. He wants me to not daven with a minion. And because he's from Baltimore, he says it very simply. He said, I'm not trying to get a record. I'm not trying to be a Cal Ripken and see how many minions I can make in a row. I'm trying to do what God wants. And if he doesn't want me to daven with a minion now, then that's what's supposed to happen. So, on that note, we can end off this episode, this wonderful episode of a little bit of touching on a few aspects of Baltimore's Jewish history, is that, um, in, since we ended off with baseball, so check out the Mishpacha magazine for the record. This week's column is also involved, also touches on baseball, and it involves one of Baltimore's most famous native sons, not Jewish, Babe Ruth. And that's, uh, that's another Baltimore connection. So, this is a Jewish History Soundbites with Yehuda Geberer. And you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest of Jewish history. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitchers. Be in touch with me about sponsorships. And I hope you enjoyed.